0: Yes. Good morning. Good morning. So, we're going to be in Matthew 16 and 17. Okay? And we'll huh? Yeah, we'll get right to it. We'll get right to it. So, verse if we're all there, just give a quick thumbs up. Amen. Amen. We're good. Okay, so verse verse 1. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, Jesus, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. So very quickly, the Pharisees and Sadducees are not a group that would normally be together, hanging out, having a good time. Um, Previously in Matthew, if we've we've read through Matthew, we've seen Pharisees and scribes, or the Sadducees sometimes by themselves, but together is a very rare occasion. The reason being, the Pharisees were law-abiding people, and the Sadducees were temple worship, sacrificial system people. So. Uh, The Pharisees believed in the resurrection of life. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of life. So very quickly, a glance over what their worldviews are like. They wouldn't be mingling together, especially in in, uh, Israel. But it's very important that they're coming together because they're finding a common enemy in Jesus. They're finding something in Jesus that's shaking their worldviews at the same time. So they're coming together to test Jesus. It's kind of like, who's, who's seen the movie Suicide Squad here? It's not the greatest movie. It's not the greatest movie. It's not the greatest movie. But in, in that movie, it's a bunch of villains that come together that wouldn't normally be together. It's Villains just want to take over the world by themselves, be the last one standing, and claim power and their kingdom over everybody. In this movie, they come together for a common enemy to survive for themselves, and they attack whatever's in front of them for their survival. And this is kind of like the Pharisees and Sadducees coming together and making sure that Jesus doesn't take over their kingdom. In the background of all of this, the Romans are in charge right now, and the Pharisees and Sadducees somehow, way, have convinced the Roman government to allow them to continue their temple worship, to allow them to abide by the law's of the Old Testament, without interfering with Rome. Rome wants them to worship Caesar, and Rome is saying, okay, you Jews are very different. Your one God type of worship we will let you be as long as there's peace. Jesus is disrupting all of that. So they're coming together to test Jesus, asking, them, asking him for a sign. And Jesus answers. He answers them, letting them know that they already have the tools to do what they're asking for. So he says to them, when it's evening, you guys say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red, and in the morning it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but somehow you can't interpret the signs of the times. In the Old Testament, the skies were like the heavens, and they would, they would communicate to the people about something that God was doing. Like uh, Kath preached about a couple weeks back, When the star was on top of uh, Bethlehem where Jesus was being born, the wise men were following the skies to figure out where this king was going. So the sky interprets something for them. But Jesus is saying, what you guys try and look up there for, it's in front of you. And you can't interpret that sign. Why? And the, the reason being is because the Pharisees and Sadducees have seen all of these signs that Jesus has already done, and they continually test them so he satisfies their testing. They're not looking at the results of the test and interpreting what's going on. For example, in science, when you're doing a research project in science, you have to do something that's called a hypothesis. You think of something, you figure figure out what the best question is to go about your research. The research might not answer the question the way you thought that question was going to be answered. But it's our job as researchers to interpret what the answer is. To figure out, okay, this is the answer I got. It's not what was in line with me, but the answer is still truth. And that's what Jesus is trying to point out to them. I've shown you all of these signs. You're asking me for more when there's more than enough. There's more than enough for you. In Romans chapter 1 verses 19 to 20 it says, this is Paul writing, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. They are without excuse. They've seen all they had to see, and they're still not following Jesus. They're still trying to take out Jesus. Again, to satisfy their their type of test. It's a selfish motive, rather than for the group, for the people, and the, the, the... the fruit of the people to believe in what Jesus is doing. So Jesus leaves them with a sign. Again, he goes from chapter 12. He left them with the sign in chapter 12 of Jonah. Three days Jonah was in the belly of the fish, just like Jesus will be three days in the heart of the earth, and he will rise again. He left them with that sign to the Pharisees in, back in chapter 12. But if we, look at the, if, if we look at the story of Jonah, Jonah was a man, prophet of God, Where at some point in his life, God spoke to him and said, Jonah, rise up. Go to the city of Nineveh, a a, a city of non-believing people, according to the Jews. Go there and preach them. Preach to them. Tell them that I am God. Jonah hears the words of God. Nineveh, let's say, is to the east. He pays a ticket to go west. How many of us can relate to Jonah? God says something, and we run totally the opposite way. Okay. Jonah is a man that believes in this God. He buys this boat trip to Tarshish, completely different city, and the sailors find themselves in a storm. The boat is in, the, in, in, in one of the worst storms they've seen. They're praying to all of their gods, and they, they, they don't hear an answer. The storm doesn't cease. They go find the other person that's on the boat with them, Jonah. Jonah's sleeping. They wake up Jonah. Jonah, wake up. Pray to your God. Maybe something will happen. And Jonah goes, oops, sorry, my bad. This is my God. You need to throw me overboard. And they ask him, what do you mean this is your God? Jonah says, this is the, my God is the God who created the lands and the sea. And they're just like, what did you do to us? What do we need to do? And Jonah says, you need to throw me overboard. Because Jonah still doesn't want to go back and do what he needs to do. So they pray to God, the sailors, the non-believing people, the immoral people. Pray to God, worship God. Sailors, check number one in Jonah's life. Jonah goes in, they throw him overboard. They worship God. Jonah survives in the fish, comes out, prays to God, comes out of the fish, uh, belly of the fish and is in Nineveh. Steps into the city of Nineveh because he tells God, I'll do what you want me to do. Fine, I'll do it. He goes to the city of Nineveh and watch the sermon that he, he preaches to them. Okay, Jonah chapter three, verses four and five. Jonah began to go into the city, going on a day's journey. The city of Nineveh is a 3 days' journey if you were to walk it from one end to the other. He goes one day into the city, so maybe a third into the city. And he called out, and he says, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. <laughs> Nobody hears is worshipping. That's the point. The, the, the sermon that he gives, for the people that know God, you're just... Okay. The city of Nineveh repented, put on sackcloth, fasted, and worshipped God from the, from the greatest of them to the least of them. A whole city of 120,000 people from that little sermon, from those couple of words, repented. Push forward. Jonah leaves the city and is upset with God. He's upset with God, and God says, Jonah, why are you upset? Don't you think those people deserve my love? And this is the sign Jesus leaves for the Pharisees and Sadducees and for us today. Sometimes he gives us a revelation of who he is in a package that we didn't expect. And that's the sign Jesus leaves for the Pharisees and Sadducees. There's things going on around you. And you who say you know God aren't changing to what's going on around you. So Jesus leaves them with this sign and departs from them. And this is very important because this is the last time he's going to have a confrontation about signs and wonders and who are you really about, Jesus, with the Pharisees, with the Sadducees and scribes. He's leaving Galilee with the disciples for the last time and he's going north. They're on the way north to a a non Jewish city. And on the way back down, everything will start to change. So verses 5 now in Matthew 16. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, we brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, "O you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the five thousand and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the four thousand and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaving of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaving of bread, but the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So leaving... Leaven is used like yeast and bread. I'm not a baker, but I was talking to Kayla. Yeast and leaven and bread makes the bread rise. Right? Correct? Makes bread rise. Now, we can't really point out where the yeast or the leaven is in the bread, but we know it's there because it's altered the bread. We good? So Jesus is telling them, after this confrontation with the Pharisees and Sadducees, he's telling them, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. The disciples self-absorbed, and probably a little bit naive and ignorant to everything that's happening, they're thinking about what they didn't bring. They didn't bring enough bread, so they think Jesus is attacking them for not bringing something to the table. And Jesus is saying to them, I'm not talking about the bread, guys. I'm talking about what just happened. How could you possibly be talking about the bread when I've given you bread that nobody has been able to offer you? He's, He's asking them to remember what he's already done. The Pharisees and Sadducees are asking for more and the disciples aren't remembering what's already been given. It's two different different ways of looking at Jesus that isn't aligning with what Jesus is doing. And he's telling them about the leave-in of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Beware of that. Beware of their teaching. And it's the same thing for us today in our world. Beware of the leave-in of our culture. For example... Our culture today will tell us that our faith is private, that our faith belongs in in church on Sunday, that all that God stuff is for you, it works for you, good job, I'm glad you're getting better. That's what our culture tries to do and teach us, whether we know it or notice it or not. Here's the thing about our culture. They say it's private, but they give us all of these different leave-in breads, fluffy stuff, to make our time so full that we don't have private time to spend time with God, to, to, to grow in our faith with God. They tell us that our God stuff is in the church, when really, Jesus told us, the church is these walls are not the church, you in fact are the church, go out there and live out your faith. And this is the teaching God for us, I believe, is telling us, beware of that leave-in. Church is not just on a Sunday morning, our faith is not just for ourselves, it's to share what God is doing in our lives with the people around us. And we'll see that as Jesus goes to in in verse 13 to 20. He takes them to the district of Ciceroi Philippi. Now when Jesus came into the district of Ciceroi Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So, takes them to Siserae Philippi, a non-Jewish area. And this, this Jewish area was historically worshipping God, the Baal, uh, god Baal, okay? the Greek god Pan, uh, and the first Roman emperor Augustus. So you can imagine in an environment where all of these different gods, not, we're not in Jerusalem anymore, we're not dealing with the Lar temple, we're dealing with all these different gods that people are worshiping. And Jesus, there in that place, asks them, who do the people say that I am? And they're saying the prophets. Which is right. He is a prophet. He is a mouthpiece for God. But he's more than that. So he asked his disciples, who do you guys say I am? In the backdrop of all this craziness of the people worshiping this God and this God, and they're worshiping uh, the, the emperor who says he's God and the son of God. And Peter and the disciples... You are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. Son of the living God. And Jesus sa- says to him, Simon, um, where is it? Simon Bar-Jonah, meaning son of Jonah. Your father did not reveal this to you. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. My father did. None of these gods reveal anything to you. My father in heaven, the real God, reveals things to you. And that's what's going on here. And he tells them, and because you have noticed this revelation... Because you've believed in this revelation, on that, Peter, I will build my foundation. I will build with you my church. And my church will be built upon each one of us, declaring and proclaiming the glories of God, who God is, and continue to build in this kingdom together with the disciples. There's a classic example of of this this environment where there's a college chaplain, so a chaplain, a priest, whatever you want in a college, working in a college, and the first-year students are coming into the college, and he's introducing them to the environment, and he's making them feel welcome. Hey, how's it going? And the the students come in and say, "Uh, it's very nice to meet you, but you won't be seeing much of me around here, the church stuff. You won't be seeing much around here. And the chaplain responds, well, how come? And the the students will usually say, Well, I don't believe in in God. I don't really believe in that. And he says, Well, what God don't you believe in? And the students will respond, Well, you know that old guy up in the sky where sometimes he does some weird miracles. He sends bad people to hell and he sends good people to heaven. Where the chaplain, after all of these conversations over the years, thought of a, a, a quirky response and said, I don't believe in that God either. I don't believe in that God. Because our God isn't a God that we can test and pull on his old beard and make him do what we want him to do. Our God doesn't just send people here and send people there. Our God is relational. And that's what the, the whole point of my father in heaven revealed this to you. You're coming together with the, with the creator of heaven and earth, the creator of land and sea, and in relationship, building with him in this kingdom. That's the God we believe in. To say that we believe in Jesus of Nazareth as God is to say no other philosophy in this world works. No other worldview will give us peace. Something has been given to us that's not from this world, and that's why we cannot find satisfaction in the things of this world anymore. When God reveals that to you, it's not to look to the leaving of the world to see what keeps satisfying us or what can numb our senses of what's going on. Something has been placed in us that is eternal. When our Father in Heaven reveals this to us, guys, I don't have Instagram, but I know for a fact everybody says, follow me, follow me, follow me. And it's offensive. The gospel is offensive at times because when we see Jesus on that Instagram feed and he says, follow me, and we click follow him or on YouTube, we click subscribe to his page. Everything changes. All of a sudden, everyone else that you are following is shut off. Everything that you've subscribed to before is taken away from you because everything we've ever needed is in Him. And Jesus ends this conversation with the disciples about who am I to you, and says, don't say this to anybody. Don't don't start proclaiming that He is the Christ, because the Jews had a mental picture of who their God was going to be like when he showed up. He was going to deliver them in a certain way. He was going to redeem them in a certain way. He was going to, he was going to free them from their slave chains in a certain way. And he was saying, don't go telling anybody. Don't go telling anybody. And it's almost like if you've ever been in a, in a, in a meeting of a pyramid scheme, if you've ever been uh, enticed to go to one of these things, <laughs> at the end of the meeting you'll notice that the person in charge will look at you and say, don't tell anybody about the business plan. <laughs> don't go around telling everybody about how great this new business is. Don't do that. If people see that you're doing something different and they can't really figure it out, give them my information so I can speak to them and convince them about this pyramid scheme because they're going to find out. <laughs> that's my, that's my, it's, a, it's, a, it's like the negative... Example, because Jesus isn't a pyramid scheme, but it's kind of the same thing. The disciples don't even yet know what Jesus is going to look like as their Messiah, as their Christ. They know what he looks like as a prophet, as a teacher of God, as a mouthpiece of God, as a great leader. They don't know what it's going to look like for him to be their Savior. And we see that in Matthew 21, uh, 16, verses 21 to 28. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Very quickly, that phrase that Matthew uses, from that time, it points something to us. He used it in chapter 4 in Matthew, when Jesus came, was baptized in water, and the Holy Spirit came and descended on him, and then he was led into the desert, and he comes out of the desert, and Matthew said, from that time, Jesus started preaching, repent, and believe the kingdom of God is at hand. Something had switched when Jesus was baptized and came out of that desert. The same thing is happening here. Something at that northern part in Caesarea Philippi has switched now that they've proclaimed that Jesus is the Christ. And Matthew's trying to wrap our heads around that. Just like something happened there, Jesus would go out in the public ministry and do his thing, something is is going to start happening. And Jesus explains to them, as your Christ, as your Savior, I'm going to die in the hands of these people. And Peter doesn't like this. Peter doesn't like this and rebukes Jesus and tells Jesus, never, that's not going to happen to you. In the same manner, Satan, in chapter 4, when he tempted Jesus, told Jesus, jump off the top of the, the, the temple and the angels will catch you. Satan, knowing that Jesus would have to come and die is trying to get Jesus to do it in a different way than what God's will was. Peter doesn't understand that saving and the gospel will not be disconnected from the cross. And Jesus will not have that. He's going to continue in this path that God has for them. He's not going to let go and trusting in what God has in store, no matter how difficult it is for his own advancement or for his own profit or for his own satisfaction. It's like it's like marriage at times or a great friendship. We, we, Peter has just confessed this great proclamation of who Jesus is and then something is shifting in him and something's not looking like how he expected it. Like in marriage, you say your vows and you come back from the honeymoon and all of a sudden things, um, what's going on here? I'm being asked to lay myself down. I'm being asked to do something I don't feel like doing. I'm um, being confronted about something that I think is right for me, but it's not right for the, And this cost of growing with each other is what Peter doesn't understand. Peter thinks it's going to continue to be all these great uh, miracles and all of these people gathered together and just following Jesus in this, in this great time. And Jesus saying something is going to change and we have to continue through. Just like in a marriage, you, in, a, in a great friendship, you continue through regardless of how much that relationship is asking you to grow in. You trust God in that and you continue to grow. And we'll see that Peter and the disciples don't want to suffer, but Jesus is going to give them something of, of eternity. He's going to give them a glimpse of abundant life. He's going to give them the... The confirmation, he's going to give them something to continue in through the suffering that they're about to walk into. And we'll move into Matthew 17 now, verses 1 to 13. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. There's Peter again saying, this is a great time. It's good we're here. If you wish, I will make three tents here. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Let's just hang out here. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise, and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as Jesus they were coming, and as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you, that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him but did to him whatever they pleased so also the son of man will certainly suffer at their hands then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist so Jesus takes them up this mountain to show them a mysterious type of vision It's it's still filled with mystery, but as he's explaining to them that he's going to go into Jerusalem and suffer at the hands of these people and die at the hands of these people, and he knows the disciples are being shook by this, he takes three of them up this mountain and is transfigured, is changed in front of them. The glory of God is beaming out of Jesus. And we see Moses and Elijah. We have to remember, way back in Exodus, when Moses was given the law, he went up the mountain. When he came back down, his face was shining. The radiance of God was shining on him. It's a picture for the Jewish community that Matthew is really writing to, that Jesus went up this mountain, and himself is shining, is glorifying, to show them Jesus is the greater Moses. He brings the new law. He brings the new kingdom. This is who you guys have been waiting for. And then Moses and Elijah appear with Jesus and are talking to the disciples. Moses, the law, is fulfilled in Jesus. Elijah, the prophets, are fulfilled in Jesus. And this is what the disciples are starting to understand, and that's why they ask him the question. But they said Elijah has to come first. And Jesus says Elijah has already come. It's John the Baptist. And if they killed him, what do you think they're going to do to me? He's preparing their hearts for what's about to happen. By showing them this vision, guys, we're supposed to see the other time Jesus is on a mountain with two people beside him, on the cross. He's got two people beside him. We're meant to see the glorious transfiguration and the cross coming together. There is glory in the cross, there is victory in the cross. And that's what, that's what I believe Jesus is giving us today, that during the suffering, it's not to turn away from it, it's to find the glory that God is showing us in it. And the same words when Jesus was baptized and came out of the water, the same words before he had done anything. This is my son, who I am well pleased in. The same words are coming as Jesus is going to enter his suffering. We're to find comfort in those things, guys. I'm to find comfort and hear those words of Jesus saying, "Rise, don't fear." When I'm having, when I think I'm in deep waters, when I think I'm being asked too much in my marriage, or when I think that I'm going nowhere. Those words, rise, have no fear, have to be preached to ourselves. <clears throat> Verse 14 in Matthew 17, they come down. So Jesus comes down from the mountain with his disciples. And when they came to the crowd, the three, he comes down from the mountain with the three disciples. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him. And the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? He said to them, because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. Besides the healing I feel God is telling us that so Peter, James, and John went up the mountain with Jesus and saw this vision, saw this unbelievable and had this unbelievable experience and we have the other disciples that didn't go up with Jesus. Jesus comes down with his three disciples off the mountain and this is the, 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 the example we have that they couldn't do something. And Jesus tells these disciples, O oh, you of little faith, O oh, you of little faith, How long must I bear with you? How long must I be with you? Don't you know that a faith as a mustard seed is more than enough to move mountains? Meaning it's more than enough to do the impossible. It doesn't matter that James, John, and Peter went up the mountain and had this great experience and you guys didn't. You have enough in you to do what's being asked in the situation. You have enough eternity in you. You have all the gifts in the world to do what's being asked in the situation. It doesn't matter where we are. It doesn't matter what we're doing. It's how we're depending on God in that situation. It doesn't matter how small we think our faith is. It doesn't matter how small we have a window to look at the things of God and understand the things of God and experience the things of God. The fact is we have a window to look at the things of God. And Jesus says that's more than enough to do the impossible with me. And in Mark, he said, the the disciples asked him, why couldn't we do it? And he says, these things can only happen with prayer. These things, when you're feeling small, when you feel like you don't have enough, it's the dependency on Jesus that is more than enough to do the impossible. And in in verse 22, he again tells them of his death and resurrection. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of man, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. The disciples are still focused on the suffering and not the victory. They're still focusing on the suffering and death, and they're not even realizing that Jesus is telling them, On the third day I will be raised again. Have faith. Have faith. I'm going to be victorious through all of this for you, for everybody. Verse 24, when they came to Capernaum, now they're back into this, the, the, the region of Galilee. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, "'Does your teacher not pay the tax?' He said, "'Yes.' And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, "'What do you think, Simon?' From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax, from their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, The sons are free. However, do not give offense to them. Go to the sea and cast out a hook, cast a hook, and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. The true the two drachma tax is based back in Exodus thirty, verse thirteen where the city of or the, the nation of Israel takes a census of the people. Anybody older than 20 years old has to pay a tax for the upkeep of the temple. And it, it goes on to tell us in, our, in the end of Exodus 30 that it's to, um, to signify the atonement of your sacrifice. What you're bringing to God, you're paying into it for the atonement. And Jesus tells Peter, the sons are free. I'm going to pay the price for you. I'm the king, you're my people, I'm going to pay the price for you. Go to, the, go to the sea, the first fish you find, open its mouth, you're going to find a shekel there. Symbolizing that he's going to pay the price, he's going to be the atonement for our sins, the atonement for our lives, and in fact, he's bringing a new temple. The temple's going to be with us. And that's what he, he's, he's telling Peter, don't worry about the tax, don't offend them, I'm going to be the new temple, I'm going to bring the new temple for you guys. And as the new temple, we reflect God's glory, not in four walls, we, res- we, we reflect His glory, his, his grace, His love outside of these walls, the temples with us, and that's what Jesus is paying, paying for at the cross, and the victory at the cross. So in these two chapters, we see the growth of the disciples in, in, in unbelief, in being naive, and being ignorant, and it it should reflect on us that as we don't understand, we continue to go to Jesus asking and seeking things from Him, for Him to reveal Himself to us, and He will continually do so and continually do so. He has given us eternity by His payment. And He hasn't left us like we heard downstairs in prayer, He hasn't left us. He's been the same 5,000 years ago. He's the same today. He's going to be the same tomorrow. So let's pray. Father, thank you that we grow with you. Thank you that we don't have to have it all put together. Thank you that you tell us that Even a little faith in you, faith with you, trusting in you is more than enough to do the impossible that we face. May we trust in you, God. May we seek you to fulfill us, to satisfy us. And thank you for the eternal longing you've placed in our lives, Father. We praise your name because we know you alone can satisfy us. Thank you that you, have, you dwell among us, Father, that we are your temple, we are your church as we leave the building. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.